The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. Okay, so Tim brought us up well, I think, uh, past the Bible Presbyterian splitting from uh, the OPC, and that brings us just chronologically, so you know where we're at, into the 1940s. That's the error that we're talking about. And just to give you a little bit of an overview of what we're going to do today, we're going to start out talking about developments in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we're going to move from that to speak uh, just a little bit about some of the continuing decline that's taking place in the PCUSA in the north, as well as um, some divisions that take place in the Bible Presbyterian Church, which we've already heard something about in weeks past. Um, I think this section of the, of the uh, class is probably of particular help to us as we look around the Presbyterian landscape in America today uh, for kind of helping us understand uh, the way things are and why they are the way they are. And we've talked about before how the character of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has been shaped uh, by conflict and by various Uh, people leaving and coming over the years, and we've talked about how that's made us into a kind of a particular group of people. And some of the things we're going to see today play very much into the abiding character of the OPC, and you'll you'll see that as we as we move through. So I have a picture up here on the on the board. Again, it's rather amazing to me that I'm able to get the slideshow to work and Tim's not. I I don't understand that. But Anyway, so uh, before us we have here Edwin Ryan, who was a major figure uh, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the early days. Some of you may have read his book, although it's debatable whether or not it's his book or not, called The Presbyterian Conflict. It's a very important book in the early years of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, detailing the conflict that had taken place in the PCUSA leading up to the formation of the OPC. But we're talking about Ryan... Uh, this morning, uh, more importantly, not, not so much about the book, but we're talking about something that he was involved in in the early years of the church, seeking to push the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in a particular direction. Uh, so Mr. Ryan, along with a, a party that was in the church in those days, even after the Bible Presbyterian Church had left, um, were trying to push the OPC in a, you could say, a broader but probably a better way to say it would be a more American direction. Sometimes they're called the American Party. And so in this group, you can think about men like Ryan. You can also think about men like Gordon Clark, who we're going to speak about a little bit more uh, today. But these men basically uh, wanted the OPC to focus in on being a part of American evangelicalism. Uh, they wanted us to fit in to the American ecclesiastical landscape a little bit better than they thought we did. Uh, And this group is going to come into conflict uh, with another group in the church, in particular the the founding professors of Westminster, at least many of them, who some of whom had come from Dutch Reformed backgrounds, and you could think of uh, Cornelius Van Til here, Nebby Stonehouse. Of course, you could also think about John Murray, who comes from a Scottish background. And all these men were seen as being something of a foreign influence on the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And men like Ryan and Clark and others 
but wanted the OPC to take a much more active role in being an American church and finding its place in the American church landscape. And to accomplish this goal, uh, Ryan uh, militated, well, he, he advocated and eventually was able to form at the General Assembly of 1941 a committee. Does anybody know what this committee was called? I like to ask questions like this to see if there's somebody out there who's a real OPC church history nerd who's just, you know, ready. But none of, none of you were there. Dr. Wilborn knows, but he's not going to say it. Uh, the Committee of Nine is, is what this, this came to be known as. So the Committee of Nine was made up of a number of men who belonged to this American party uh, in the OPC. And, and they had uh, particular goals in mind. They, they desired uh, the, the OPC... Uh, to be more appropriately, in their mind, the spiritual successor of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. And to do so, they wanted the OPC to cultivate a certain amount of cultural clout in the United States. And we've talked about the PCUSA's cultural clout before. It had a tremendous cultural clout. And we can think, for instance, of people like Woodrow Wilson, uh, not only the, the president of Princeton University, but the president of the United States of America. Uh, we can think about all sorts of figures throughout American history who belonged to the mainline Presbyterian church, and they gave the church a certain respectability in American society uh, that the OPC, little as it was and insignificant as it was, didn't have. And men like Ryan wanted to seek to recover some of that. And the way they wanted to do that uh, was, uh, first and foremost, uh, by taking uh, or by using this committee uh, to propose that the General Assembly make certain moves. Uh, for instance, uh, the Committee of Nine wanted the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to join something called the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, the National Association of Evangelicals had not been formed until just recently. Maybe even it hadn't come into existence at this point. I have to check on that. But it was, it was in the works and Ryan and others thought that this would be a good way for the OPC to participate more broadly in the American, uh, like I said, ecclesial landscape. It's interesting, uh, the NAE uh, has done a number of things that would probably make many of us uncomfortable with over the years. At this time, it was probably a little bit more conservative, could we say, institution. Today, it, it is not so at all. It's actually... Uh, quite progressive, at least in many of its political agendas. Matter of fact, our brothers and sisters in the PCA just voted to leave the NAE after they had been a member of it for, for quite a while. And they did that in part because of those political agendas uh, that it had adopted. So they wanted to do that. They also wanted to bring Westminster Seminary under the control of the OPC. And in so doing, uh, they would solidify, in a sense, Westminster and the OPC's connection. Westminster probably, I think maybe today this is the same, uh, it probably had a bit of a, a better reputation uh, than the OPC itself in American Christianity. And, and so by tying Westminster and the OPC, they, they thought, probably roughly, that they could gain a certain amount of uh, credibility uh, for the new church at this point. So Ryan uh, starts this committee. He, he does, however, not get everything he wants. He stacks this committee with many of the men who he desired to put on it. Uh, unfortunately, he got a few men on there that he didn't want. Uh, in particular, he got one man who 
you all would know, uh, Cornelius Van Til. Another he got on there was uh, Murray F. Thompson, uh, who was very, very close with Van Til. They attended church together. They did a number of things together. They shared causes over the years. And these two men basically torpedoed Ryan's desires. They came back to the General Assembly the next year after seeing what the committee wanted to do. And they exposed, in some ways, what Ryan and the American Party desired to do, which was to make the OPC less of a reform denomination with commitments to reform churches, such as the Christian Reform Church, and to make it more of an evangelical church, a church that would be more uh, broadly ecumenical within American Christianity. And so anyway, this, this does not go well for Ryan. Eventually, the General Assembly decides to, uh, to, to, um, to, take this, uh, to, to discontinue this committee. And, and in the process of doing so, they make it clear, really, uh, that men like Ryan are not going to have the future they thought they were in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Now, it's easy perhaps for us, or maybe it's just easy for me, I don't know, uh, to beat up on somebody like Ryan. But I do want you to think about this for a second. The church had been in existence for four, five, six years. And the church only had at this point 6,000 members and 70 churches. How big was the Peace USA at this point, Tim, just roughly? About 2 million people. So in some ways you can sympathize with what these brothers wanted to do. You know, they're looking at this weak, insignificant little body and they're saying, we've got to do something about this. My suspicion would be that if they were to fast forward and see the OPC in all its grandeur today at a little more than 30,000 people, they would probably think that they were exactly right. <laughs> they would probably think they were right. But anyway, we'll see where some of these men end up uh, as, as time goes on. But so this is Ryan. Ryan eventually uh, leaves uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He, he leaves... Uh, in, um, let's see, 1945, that's right. And he goes back into the PCUSA. And um, my understanding is he spends the rest of his life in the PCUSA. Uh, This is a very interesting thing to think about. Ryan had been a counsel to Machen uh, during his trial. He had been a very influential figure. He had written an important book, and yet he decided that the OPC was not the place for him. Was he, he was still in the PCUSA when he died. Yeah, California, I believe, somewhere. Yeah. So here we have uh, a Ryan. Maybe the polar opposite of Ryan at this point would have been a man, Paul Woolley. Does, has anybody ever heard of Paul Woolley? Okay, yes, a few people. Yeah, Paul, Paul Woolley uh, wrote uh, a paper in the, uh, or an article in the Presbyterian Guardian after some of the things we're going to talk about today happened. Um, basically pointing the figure at figures like Ryan and and figures like Gordon Clark as well, and and arguing that these men had an unhealthy discontent with the church. Uh, He believed, basically, that their discontent was not that the church wasn't sufficiently reformed, that the church wasn't sufficiently um, even evangelistic, although maybe maybe Woolley wouldn't have gone that far. I'm not sure. But, um, But basically, he saw these men as being upset that they would never see their names in the newspaper and that they would never read about the goings-on of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in places like the New York Times. 
basically they were upset that by joining this new church, they had put themselves in obscurity. Um, it's going to be a struggle for many people in the OPC over the years. So we've... Yes. Right, right. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, we, he could get a bad rap, and there's some things he did that, you know, there, there's speculation that the book that he wrote uh, was actually not his book, but it was actually J. Gresson Machen's book. Um, you can read about that. There's been recent articles written arguing that point. May, maybe that's the case. Uh, I don't know that we'll ever know that. Uh, per, perhaps Ryan did have some significant flaws. Uh, but there is an aspect of what he's saying here which we shouldn't ignore. I mean, he, he's right. Um, the OP probably could have been better. Probably could be better today <laughs> at, at having something to say and saying it well. So we don't, we don't want to totally throw him under the bus, I don't think. Okay, so Gordon Clark, I want to move on and talk just for a minute about something else very important uh, to OP history that happened around this same time. Uh, really, while this whole discussion is going on, uh, something happens that we've come to call the Gordon Clark uh, Cornelius Van Til or the Clark Van Til controversy. This happens basically between uh, 1943 and 1947. Gordon Clark is an interesting figure. Uh, Gordon Clark had been a ruling elder in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church since the very early uh, days, actually since the absolute beginning. He's actually the man, according to uh, the biography of Cornelius Van Til by John Meather, who nominated J. Gresson Machen to be the moderator of the First General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So this is who we're talking about here. We're not talking about some no-name guy. We're talking about a guy who had been around in the OP and who was well-respected in the OPC. So Gordon Clark uh, was a philosophy professor. Uh, in the 1940s, uh, he, was, he was teaching at Wheaton College. Actually, he had been teaching there since the 1930s. At that time, uh, J. Oliver Buswell was the president of Wheaton College, which you've heard that name before in Tim's lessons up to this point. He would leave at the Bible Presbyterian Church, a very influential man, though, in the early days of the OPC. So uh, J. Oliver Buswell was there at Wheaton College at this point as the president, and he um, is there with Gordon Clark. Gordon Clark is his, uh, one of his philosophy professors. Now, uh, as we move into the 1940s, something begins to happen at Wheaton. And uh, Wheaton decides that they want to go away, uh, at least from the perception at the time, which was that they were too Calvinistic. So eventually they get rid of Buswell, and Gordon Clark sees the writing on the wall for a, for a time, and then eventually he, he actually goes ahead and leaves uh, the college. And so Gordon Clark, being a ruling elder in the Chicago area, begins to seek employment, and he finds an opportunity at the Reformed Episcopal Seminary in Pennsylvania. 
Uh, but to take up the work of teaching at the seminary, uh, he needs to do something. Remember, he's a ruling elder. Uh, he needs to be ordained as a minister. And so he uh, transfers. Actually, he doesn't transfer. That's an interesting point. It, he comes to the Presbytery of Philadelphia uh, to be examined, to be licensed and ordained. Now, this ends up becoming a problem. It's a problem maybe for a couple of reasons. One reason it's a problem is because in the Presbytery of Philadelphia, there are a number of men in the Presbytery who are professors at Westminster Seminary. And remember, while this is going on, uh, there's also the debate that's raging in the church about what the church is going to be like. This is the same time where Ryan is militating for a certain type of church. And these men find themselves on the other side of it. And now Gordon Clark, an ally of Ryan, comes into the Presbytery. So part of uh, the Van Til Clark controversy that is not always recognized is that it's not purely about the theology of Gordon Clark. It's also, in some ways, it becomes uh, a kind of a proxy battle between these two parties in the church. This can happen sometimes. It's not always a good thing. But unfortunately, it, it does take place. But anyway, so Clark comes to stand for licensure exams, and, and he, he passes his licensure exams, but he does so just barely. And uh, after he does, uh, some no votes are recorded. These are some of them. Ned Stonehouse, Cornelius Van Til, R.B. Kuyper, Paul Woolley, E.J. Young. <laughs> you can see how that might stir the pot a little bit. Basically, all the faculty at Westminster who are here are, are saying, no, we don't, we don't think that this man should pass his licensure exams. And then something else happens. They, they proceed at the same meeting, not only to, to license him to preach, but also to ordain him, uh, which is seen by other presbyteries as, as very unusual. And it would be, because there's no period of probation. Uh, he, he wasn't just licensed... He was also licensed and ordained. So he showed up as a guy under care of the presbytery, and he leaves as a minister, or able to be ordained as a minister. I'm not sure if they actually laid hands on him there or not. So this is an issue. Another issue is that Clark was coming from Chicago, basically, and he came into the presbytery of Philadelphia to seek ordination, um, which is also a problem. Actually, this this very incident is going to lead the OPC to change its book of church order so that men have to uh, pursue ordination and uh, licensing within the presbytery that they reside normally. Anyway, uh, the, the heart of the matter, though, these are all peripheral issues. Um, the heart of the matter is a debate about theology, though. It's a debate about uh, particularly the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. We're not going to get very far into this, but I do just want you to know what's going on here. Basically, uh, Gordon Clark, to some degree or another, how he would articulate this, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not vouching, I'm not going to say that I'm going to say it exactly the way Gordon Clark would have said it, but basically he believed that man in some way could share the same knowledge that, that God has. Uh, this is a, a rejection of the idea of, of the analogical knowledge of God. And Van Til and others, in particular, actually, John Murray, had a serious problem with this because they saw Gordon Clark's teaching as blurring the distinction between the creator and the creature. And this becomes uh, quite 
an issue. And the fight over Gordon Clark, his theology, and his ordination uh, goes on for quite a while. I do want to note, though, how this, this trial becomes part of the broader fight that's taking place. Um, Dr. Strong, Robert Strong, who's an OPC minister at this time, he's actually, if I remember correctly, he is uh, the minister who, or he's a pastor of the largest Orthodox Presbyterian church at this time. So he's an he's a influential figure. Uh, he's a part of this American party, as we've been calling it here. And Strong went so far as to, to issue this program of action for the OPC and listen to the things that he, he wants to do. Now, the first thing he wants to do is basically solidify the ordination of Gordon Clark. The second thing is he wants us to affiliate with one of the large interdenominational fundamentalist associations. He also wants an official declaration against the sale and des- distribution of liquor, and he wants the, the supervision of the OPC over Westminster Seminary and the Presbyterian Garden. I say that to note how this issue got wrapped up together uh, with this broader fight uh, that's taking place. Eventually, though, as uh, Ryan did, uh, Clark would uh, get tired of fighting. Uh, And at that point, Gordon Clark, uh, as Ryan did, uh, left the Orthodox Presbyterian Church as well. And so did a number of other people, several missionaries that were about to go to Korea, actually, ended up leaving and going to the Southern Presbyterian Church at the time. So this controversy, uh, it did significant damage to the, to the early OPC. You can imagine what it would have been like to be an observer of the church at this point. We've just seen the Bible Presbyterians leave. And it was a good chunk of the church that left. And then you see, again... All of these men leaving, some of the most influential men in the church at the time. Gordon Clark is a, is a larger, he's, he's, he's a big figure. And Ed Ryan. So you can see that this was a, was a very turbulent period uh, in the OPC's history. Gordon Clark actually would leave and join the United Presbyterian Church. And when the United Presbyterian Church joined with the PCUSA, which we're going to see in a little while, he then goes into a church that Tim has talked about previously, part of the Covenanters, uh, who had actually lost their distinctives by the time that Gordon Clark comes into them, the Reformed Presbyterian Church uh, General Synod or Assembly. I can't remember the exact title. And then eventually he will be a part of that church when it joins with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which is a break off of the Bible Presbyterian Church, and comes into the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, and then through that means ends up in the PCA eventually. So he's an interesting figure for that, too. You can trace kind of all the various divisions and, and trails of American Presbyterianism a- along with the history of, of Gordon Clark. I did want to say, um, there's an interesting biography uh, of Gordon Clark that's just been published not long ago. Um, it's an interesting read. Um, I've heard good things about it. I've heard bad things about it, but it's interesting nonetheless. If you're interested in Gordon Clark and following his life story, it's it's worthwhile. So that's Gordon Clark. Yes. Yes, I, I believe you were the recipient of Gordon Clark's coffee pot. So if you would like to drink 
from Gordon Clark's coffee pot. Tim Hopper is your man. That's quite a claim to fame. Okay, so we know where his coffee pot is as well. Uh, Briefly, I do want to mention, um, uh, I'm not going to get very much into this at all, but uh, something called the the Penile uh, Conference and the controversy that was sparked around this. Uh, there was a, uh, a debate that raged in, in a couple of presbyteries in the APC, in particular Philadelphia and New York, over a, a conference and a set of teachings associated with this conference. Uh, basically, this was a debate about uh, views of the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the work of the individual, at work in the individual Christian. I'm not going to go too far into that, but uh, that is an important debate in early OP history. It actually lasts for about 17 years on and off. And, and it revolves around a number of ministers who were on the board of that conference and a number of licentiates who were eventually ordained in the APC who had kind of cut their teeth in that conference. And basically what happens in the end is, is the General Assembly in uh, 1961 uh, declares that the teachings of the penile uh, conference were a deviation from the doctrinal standards of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and leaning, as I noted, uh, towards charismatic theology. Another important thing, oh, you see I have, this is why Tim doesn't use slideshows, by the way, because you plop up a picture that you were supposed to use 10 minutes ago. So here's, here's some pictures for you. We had Van Til back here, his circles, he's famous for his circles. Uh, Dr. Murray, both of these men obviously um, involved in a number of these. Do what? He was never Dr. Murray. Oh, you're right. Yes, okay. This is why we have Ervron, to make sure that I don't say things that are wrong. That's right, good. Okay. All right, so moving forward, I'll leave you here for just a moment. Um, Do know that it's during the period between 1944 and 1961 that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church um, begins to develop the Trinity Hymnal. Uh, That's a pretty big thing that happens in OPC history, and um, it's kind of boring to talk about, so I'm not going to talk about it very much. Um, Not that some of this other stuff isn't boring, but I think this is a little bit boring, probably because I don't know anything about music. I apologize. Um, But the OPC does produce a hymnal, and that's important. They, They had been wanting to do that since the very early days. The Second General Assembly had decided it was necessary um, if you're familiar with some of the writings of Machen, he had been very critical of the recent PCUSA hymnal. And so the need for a hymnal was, was pressing uh, in the church, and they do uh, develop that hymnal. And it's a fascinating thing to consider. This tiny church ends up producing this hymnal, and that hymnal, well, it, it has maybe more influence than anything else the OPC did. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it for a moment, that hymnal is all over the place, even today. Um, if you were to go into many PCA churches, you would see the, the Trinity Hymnal or ARP churches. That, that hymnal was used not only in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but all around American Reformed uh, churches. So, the Trinity Hymnal, I just want to throw that out there as well. Okay, so we're moving quick because we're, we're trying to cover not just some OP stuff, but also uh, some of what's going on in the main line. So, we're leaving the OPC at this point. Uh, and, and jumping over to discuss uh, something that takes place in the 1950s. And uh, in particular, I want to talk for a moment about 
the union that happens between the United Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Church USA. So you remember the, the lineage of the UPC. Um, Tim did a good job of explaining all of that. This is, a, this is a church, if you remember, that was a merger of ARP churches in the north and associate Presbyterian churches in the north. You can think about it kind of like the northern version of the ARP. Uh, but unfortunately, by the time we get to the 1950s, the church has declined quite a bit. It's, it's gotten infected with theological liberalism uh, to the point where uh, it eventually is able to enter into union with the Peace USA. Interesting to note that the Peace USA actually did not just want to join with the UPC, they also wanted to join with the Southern Church. Uh, but the PCUS rejected the merger in 1954, and the PCUSA and the UPC continued in their talks. Now, I wanted to talk about this for a moment because it tells you a little bit about the character of the OPC at this point. The OPC is very animated about this. Uh, Matter of fact, the Committee on Home Missions takes it upon themselves uh, to print pamphlets, uh, one pamphlet by John Galbraith and another uh, by a Southern Presbyterian minister, arguing against the United Presbyterians merging with the, UP, or with the PCUSA and sends these pamphlets out to all the, the UPC ministers they had addresses for, uh, trying to prevent this merger. So you can see here the OPC's continued conflict with the mainline church. They're trying to prevent this uh, really as hard as they can. And the OPC also, when they realized they couldn't prevent it, they also thought that this might be an opportunity for them to get something of a windfall of new churches. So they were very excited about the idea of United Presbyterian churches coming into the OPC. Anybody want to guess how many United Presbyterian churches ended up in the OPC? Zero? Not quite. They basically got four congregations from the United Presbyterians. And the United Presbyterians are a fairly large group, I believe, when they entered in the PCUSA. After the merger had taken place, about 10% of the churches that were in the UPCUSA had been United Presbyterian churches. So this is a larger group. And there were conservatives associated with this group. You can think about men uh, like John Gerstner, for instance. Uh, but very, very few of them came out and joined with the OPC. Many of them stayed and some went different places. So, as we mentioned earlier, Gordon Clark had left the OPC and joined the United Presbyterian Church. And then he leaves the UPC at this point and joins with uh, the, the, the New Light Covenanters at that point and as a part of them. So, uh, this union takes place in 1956, and it, it shows the continued decline, really, across the board uh, in the main line of American Presbyterianism. Uh, it's a sad thing to see. But in God's providence, that's, uh, that's what happened. So, continue forward. After the merger, and you know we're, we're skipping many things, but this is very important. After the merger, uh, the next major event we want to we hit here is uh, the General Assembly of the Peace USA in, in 1967. And surrounding this General Assembly, something called the Confession of 1967. Does anybody know anything about the Confession of 1967? What do you know about the Confession of 1967? 
That's key. Yeah, key. Yeah, very important to, to note that it displaces the Westminster Confession. The General Assembly of the OPC uh, commented on this when it happened. They, they marked out four things that the, the adoption of this confession did. It removed the Bible from its position as the only infallible rule of faith and life. Second, it repudiated the whole system of doctrine set forth in the Westminster Standards. Third, it removed any confessional foundation for the life and witness of the church. And fourth, it accommodated the gospel to the currents of unbelief. So you can see the assessments of the OPC uh, with regards to the Confession of 1967. It was really devastating for the PCUSA. It... it, uh, it adopted, oh, let's see, let me read it here, accommodated the gospel to a current unbelief. So this, this happens in 1967. Uh, as a result of that, a few things happen here. You can see men in the OPC, Cornelius Van Til himself, he, he writes uh, a book, a little pamphlet here, on the confession of 1967, its theological background and ecumenical significance. Uh, I put this here because it shows something of the character, I think, of of uh, dissenting voices in America here. We have Van Til doing what you would expect Van Til to do. He writes a book. And now we have Carl McIntyre's response to the confession. Uh, He, well, he does this um, very prophetically. Uh, McIntyre shows up at the General Assembly uh, with his sign, you know, how can you live in a dead church? And he, and he he brought a casket and he bought a hearse. I was discussing with Tim this week that it may be the case, and I, this, is, this is a question for Dr. Wilborn, uh, it may be the case that Carl McIntyre is the Florida man of American Presbyterianism. You know, you, you think about what's just happened here. If you're describing this to your friend, well, what did Carl do? Well, he brought a hearse and a casket to the General Assembly. It's just normal activity for Carl McIntyre. Uh, but that does uh, bring us to Carl McIntyre, and we will um, probably continue with him next week, because I believe I'm out of time. Is that right, Tim? What am I running toward to now? Okay, well, we'll, we'll continue on for just a minute then with, with Carl. So, we'll hop back from the mainline church at this point over uh, to the Bible Presbyterians. And the Bible Presbyterians, as you know, have broken off from the OPC. And one of the major figures in the Bible Presbyterian Church was, was Carl McIntyre. And you can get a flavor of Carl McIntyre just from the pictures I've thrown up here, not only of the hearse, but also of the picketing and, and things. These were kind of normal Carl McIntyre activities. Um, uh, there's a great book written about him. Um, well, I've heard it's a great book. I haven't had an opportunity to read it. I would really like to. It's called uh, Carl McIntyre Fighting Fundamentalist. Um, and I'm sure it's very entertaining knowing just a little bit about Carl McIntyre. But McIntyre was a powerful personality, and he he tended to rub some folks the wrong way, much like myself, perhaps. Um, And and McIntyre exerted an incredible amount of influence over the Bible Presbyterian Church, uh, to the point where people began to chafe under him. Uh, And and there's a number of ways in which this happens, but, but basically... Uh, McIntyre's vision for the church became out of sync with a number of other influential men in the church. Uh, And what that led to is is in 1956, which is before uh, some of the the pictures we've seen here, 
uh, the Bible Presbyterian Church divides. Uh, and it divides between uh, the Bible Presbyterian Church, Collingwood, New Jersey Senate, which was uh, the, the, the part that was loyal to McIntyre, and, and the Bible Presbyterian Church, uh, Columbus, Ohio Synod. Now, as time went on, that Columbus Synod of the Bible Presbyterian Church became very concerned that they were going to be confused. You can see why. They're both called the Bible Presbyterian Church. Uh, with the other Bible Presbyterians, and so they changed their name. Uh, does anybody know what they changed their name to? Evangel- yeah, somebody said it, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which has, by the way, been a popular choice. Remember, the OPC thought about naming itself that. Uh, the Bibles are going to name themselves that, and then after they leave existence, there's going to be another group called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Uh, but this is not the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of today, if you're, if you're wondering about that. They have no... Uh, association together, at least in my knowledge, totally different groups of people. And so they renamed themselves the the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Um, That wing of the church is the wing that's associated uh, with men like Francis Schaeffer. Um, And it's also the wing of the church uh, that would end up merging with the RPs uh, and becoming the RPCES, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, uh, later in the 1960s. Interestingly, uh, the, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church establishes two institutions, um, probably more than that, but I'm not aware of those. But it establishes Covenant College and Covenant Seminary. Originally, they were in California. And of course, that's where the PCA has gotten its denominational institutions, uh, is through the merger that they've had with the RPC. Uh, ES. And those institutions trace their lineage not to Carl McIntyre, but to the uh, Bible Presbyterian Church Columbus Synod. Okay, let me stop here. Questions? We covered a lot of ground, did some zigzagging. I think personally that this is the, the error of American Presbyterian Church history that can be kind of the hardest to to nail things down in because you have a splintering, you have unions happening, you have churches named the same thing as churches after them named. It, it can be a little bit difficult to, to work out. But anyway, anything that anybody would like to point out, comment on? Okay. I'll take that as satisfaction and not confusion. We'll see if I'm right. All right. Okay, good. All right, well, let's pray, and then, uh, then you can go get your children out of Sunday school. I speak to myself there as well. All right. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we contemplate all the, the various schisms and all the, the various strife that has taken place in your church throughout the years, we do wonder and amazement that you have preserved her. And we thank you, O Lord, that you have indeed done so. We thank you, Father, that we have the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Father, that we would see in the history of our own church warnings, exhortations, and indeed encouragements. Encouragements of your faithfulness and warnings of our own propensity to sin. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us many fruitful lessons even from a study such as this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.